Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I am delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership R&B vocalist and entertainer, Michelle Clark-White, best known as Shelley Clark, and as a member of the popular early 1970s singing trio, Honeycomb. Signed to Motown Legends, Holland Dozier Holland's Hot Wax label, the group released four albums and had nine top 40 R&B hits. The crowning achievement of their highly infectious funky soul was the song Want Ads, which topped both the pop and R&B charts in 1971. Singing professionally since she was a child, Clark's other credits include Ike and Tina Turner Review, Little Richard, Dusty Springfield, Tommy Rowe, and Carrie Lucas. Married to Earth, Wind, and Fire bassist for Dean White since 1980. She's also worked for Eddie Murphy Television, managed celebrities, and co-hosted a podcast called That's My Story. How sweet it is to have an original <laughs> honeycomb on hand. Shelly, thank you for joining the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. How's everything going? Uh, everything, well, today woke up with a bang. Uh, there was a, a um, I woke up to a husky, a beautiful blue-eyed husky tied to my front gate with a note around his neck saying, um, <laughs> um, my owner can't afford me anymore. Uh, please take care of me. I'm, I'm a good girl. So that was my morning. <laughs> well, I do like those dogs. <laughs> right, right. I know, I know. Blue eyes, beautiful. Um, you know, I, I have two small dogs. So, you know, we'll see how this works out. <laughs> wow, that doesn't happen every day, I'm guessing. No, very, very interesting. Very interesting morning. Yeah, well, um, okay. And uh, otherwise, uh, doing okay, making it through uh, this uh, craziness of the past year and a half, oh, wow. uh, relatively okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Verdane's been gone for the last, uh, I want to say, 11 days. They're rehearsing their tour, a fall tour show in Philadelphia. And uh, they're coming tomorrow. He comes in for one day, two days, and then they're right back out again for maybe six weeks. So, um, and then my group, Honeycomb, we have been in rehearsals um, on and off because one of my girls lives in Virginia and the other one is visiting her family, but we're working on our brand new show as well. So. I look forward to that. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's so, so great that, uh, you know, Verdine and, and soon yourself are getting back out there with, you know, how it's been. So very carefully, that, very carefully. Yeah. They're COVID testing almost every day. And the band is, you know, this this uh, year, sadly, there'll be no uh, backstage meet and greets, uh, which Verdine really loves to do. But, um, you know, it's not possible. It's not safe. So we got the Delta raging. And um, I'm just happy that they're able to get back out there because the venues have not been wanting to, uh, to book the acts. So, you know. I'm glad that they're uh, they're going to attempt it this fall, and then of course next year is the Santana tour. You know, if everything goes well. Yeah, well, the people need it. They need the music more now than ever, and uh, you know, just um, hopefully we're turning a corner and uh, moving in a positive direction once again. Amen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I saw that you uh, did a podcast just uh, this week. Uh, this will be broadcast a few weeks from now, oh. but it, uh, this month is the anniversary of, of uh, Edna's passing and the right uh, uh, transition last year. I think, I think it's year. Sunday. I believe it's Sunday. She will have been uh, uh, in heaven for one, one year, uh, September 12th. I believe that's Sunday. Yeah. Well, you know, glad you're able to do a, a tribute like that. And uh, it seemed like it turned out well. So congratulations. Oh, it on really that. was. We had such great people coming on, saying great things. And um, we had a lot of comments, you know, of our fans of the show. You know, thanks. We're glad you guys are back because we went on hiatus because chairman of the board started touring. So um, we're going to do a, a little bit here and there. Uh, their leader, of course, and founder was General Johnson, the great General Johnson who wrote all the Honeycomb songs with Greg Perry. So um, we'll probably do a tribute to him too coming up in October. Nice. All right. We'll look for that. Okay. And uh, 
you know, uh, I know you've been through it before, but for our audience, uh, yes. I definitely want to know more about uh, your personal history. And, uh, you know, you were a uh, performing as a child, uh, I understand. So you've been doing it since uh, you were in diapers just about. So, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into singing and, and how that progressed uh, through your teen years. My mother, um, she's a Russian Jew, and um, she is a concert pianist. And she was playing for the, I want to say, uh, Stetson Philharmonic Orchestra in uh, Deland, Florida. And um, so she has always been in music. And when I was little, I just remember her playing the piano. And she said that. I had perfect pitch that I would come in and start singing with her when I, like you said, when I was in diapers, maybe two years old or whatever. And um, she told my father, uh, Eddie, come in here and listen to this. And so I didn't know, I was probably la la la, you know. <laughs> and so they started teaching me songs and entering me in pageants. And so I was such a little, uh, you know, slant, little Shirley Temple. Uh, that they added my brother to the act after that. And we were known uh, all over, especially in New York as the fabulous Clark kids. And you actually had a record at seven years old? Is that oh right? my gosh. They, I wanna say they came and got me out of, um, my brother and I were on Broadway and um, they came and got us out of the Broadway play with Pearl Bailey and Diane Carroll, her, her first job at 18 years old. And um, we went and recorded this whole album, I think, in, I want to say, two days. And uh, it was marketed for the New York City school system, where the, the kids could come and play percussion. It was a Calypso record. They could play percussion and sing along. Uh, and so the record was in, the album was in high demand. And so it was all throughout the schools and... I understand that Columbia did really well with that. Wow. So did you feel comfortable on stage right from the get-go or were you a little bit shy or what? Uh, I actually did. I didn't know any better. You know, I thought that that's the way things were supposed to be. And um, so I, I had a good time. I was always uh, engaging with the audience. And uh, even afterward, you know, I would go and take pictures with, uh, some of the celebrities and um, I look back on it now and I go wow that was uh, Nat King Cole you know <laughs> wow that was me that was with Lena Horn <laughs> and um, I don't know I'm just blessed to ha have been in the business that way and and been in it for so long and came out of it okay because usually child entertainers don't fare that well when uh they come out of that cutesy era, which my brother and I eventually did. We came out of the cutesy era and we had to figure out what we were gonna do from that point. Uh, but, but we were in LA by then. So um, he, 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 um, uh, he passed away, by the way, um, of pancreatic cancer about two or three years ago, but he remained singing the whole time uh, and got with a couple of groups and did some things. He would always say, hey, Shelly, let's, let's put the band back together, you and me. <laughs> and for some reason, we never got around to that. But uh, he always loved music, and, and I did too. 
And I don't know if we had mentioned, but where were you from originally? I know you moved to LA when you were young. But... Uh-huh, Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, what was it like, you know, growing up in LA and, and the music scene uh, that was in LA at that time? Uh, I want to say I was in my pre-teens. I went to high school out here, went to LA High. And um, I started singing um, and my brother and I were doing folk songs. It was, you know, that time of uh, the era and uh, where Hoop Nanny was in. But at school I was singing and um, I went and auditioned for a scholarship to, it was a special scholarship for high school students to attend USC if they want, while they were still in high school. So really that's what I did. I won the scholarship and I started uh, attending USC, studying with a very famous classical teacher named Alice Mock. And I was coming in horse all the time. And she eventually said, look, you've got to make a choice. Uh, you're not going to be able to, if you're singing, um, you know, regular R&B and secular music, when you're not here, it's going to ruin your voice. So she said, go ahead and do that. In which case, it's what I did. And I just started singing mostly uh, folk songs, Hoot Nanny with my brother. And uh, so that was anything you know Tina Turner and all of that so what was your first uh you know professional gig if you will um you know as a as a teen or I'm not sure how old you were when you first had a, you know something that you felt like was more adult uh well as an adult um my brother and I were playing doing hootenanny and folk songs and we were at the Roxy and places like the Battle of the Bands. I think at that time it might have been what was the Hollywood Bowl or whatever that was. And um, we just did local clubs. And um, I can't say that, you know, our careers really took off doing that, but it was fun. And uh, it one thing led to the other and, and uh, eventually they found a uh, uh, and her name was Ann Kane, and she somehow found me and said, uh, I worked for Tina Turner, and uh, I was right out of high school, all in the same era, and uh, she came to my home and auditioned me, and she said, oh, you're, you're, you're good, okay, so you're going to go and sing, and I said, okay, fine, when, and she said, you fly out tomorrow, I said, tomorrow, <laughs> are you serious, so that's exactly what happened. And uh, when I when I, I think I flew into I want to say Kansas maybe, and um, when I got there, I met Tina, and she was coming down in the elevator, and she said, um, "Oh, I heard about you. What sign are you?" And I said, "I'm a Leo," and she said, "Oh, good. I'm a Sagittarius. We're going to get along great," and we did. And I think she liked the fa fact that I could keep up with her dancing. She always kept me next to her. And um, so I did that for a while. What, what year was that when you first connected with Tina? Say that again? What year was that when you first connected with Tina? That had to be 1966. So I'm guessing that those were some grueling rehearsals though. Yeah, because uh, the ICATs actually, we made up our own stuff as we, as we went. And uh, Tina, she's amazing. She, you know, was the, I think the only one back in the day that was singing and dancing on that 
particular kind of level because she's a powerhouse. So she's a triple threat, you know, singer, dancer, uh, actress, <laughs> all of the above. And I learned a lot with her. I learned, um, you know, how to just keep pace with someone that is just so dynamic on stage like that. You know, I had done my own thing dancing with my brother back in the day, but uh, she took it to a whole new level. And I believe that uh, Beyonce, Rihanna, all the girls that came after her, uh, Tony Brax, everybody learned from Tina because uh, if you really wanted to up your game, you had to, uh, you know, watch her and emulate her and do what she was doing. And, and um, I just, I'm, I was blessed to spend that time with her. How long were you with Tina? <laughs> Uh, I want to say it was probably uh, less than a year because the I was in a bad bus accident. The tour bus turned over, and uh, after <laughs> the, the the poor driver was working the lights at night and driving the bus in the days, so he was never sleeping, and so he fell asleep at the wheel. And uh, Al McKay was a former guitarist of Earth, Wind, and Fire. He was in Ike's band at that time, so he was my bus mate. And we saw the bus driver. I said, Al, wake up. Look, this guy's falling asleep. And he said, Guy, go up there and talk to him. <laughs> so I went up there and I talked as long as I could, but we were all exhausted. So I went, well, as soon as I went and sat back down, boom, he hits uh, a telephone pole, probably going 65 miles an hour. And this bus turned over three revolutions. The doors opened. I flew out the door. I I'm unconscious, of course. And I rolled down this hill. Uh, embankment and next thing I knew Al was standing over me saying Shelly wake up wake up babe are you alive and um, I didn't know what happened I said Al I, I have I have a headache <laughs> and, and, and look I have a fever blister something happened um, can you get me can you I was in I was delirious like, can you get me a pillow <laughs> so Al McKay takes off his jacket in sub-zero weather, it's snowing. He takes off his jacket and sticks it under my head. And the next thing I knew, uh, paramedics were coming. And I said, please don't touch me, don't touch me. I knew that if they had to start unbending me, I was a, like a pretzel down there, all bent up. And they said, I'm sorry, we have to. And um, that's when I think I was in a lot of pain when they were trying to untangle me. Uh, but uh, I didn't think I was that bad when I got to the hospital. Um, Tina came and she, doctors told her where I was and she looked at me and uh, she started crying and I said, oh boy, I must be in trouble. <laughs> and she instructed the doctors, don't give her a mirror because, you know, I was, my face was all banged up. So, um, I don't know, I never could figure out how my mother found me in this hospital uh, because nobody her, you know, we didn't have cell phones then. And I, I think it was just somehow on the news. And she, I think she started calling every hospital in Wichita, Kansas. And eventually she found me. And uh, I had to try to walk to the phone, which my legs were in bad shape. So uh, that, that I remember was a feat. Uh, but uh, I got out of the hospital maybe two weeks later. And because the tour went on w without me, it went on without 
the people that were injured, the bass player, his name was Ron Johnson. He was injured. He was in the hospital with me. And uh, so they just recruited more people. You know, I was madman. He was like, well, the show must the show go must, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, after that, I went back to LA and just tried to heal up. In which case, uh, you know, it took me maybe a couple months or so, and then I was right back on the road with little. I auditioned for a dancer as a dancer, and I uh, was right back on the road dancing, opening the show for Little Richard. Wow! Um, did you have any crossover? Um, first of all, thank goodness you made it through that. Made it through. You know, um, scary. Uh, did yeah. did it make you, uh, you know, apprehensive to be on buses and things like that yes. afterwards? Yes. When I, when I was hired to do Little Richard, I said, we're going to have to tour like in a bus or something. And it, it was like a big, huge van, you know, tour bus van. And they said, yeah. And I said, I don't know if I can do this. I really didn't. I was paranoid every time the bus hit a bump. I was, you know, and I'm, it, it, I mean, if I had known better, I would have tried to take some sort of anxiety medicine, but, you know, that wasn't popular back then. So I just had to sleep. I tried to sleep on the tour buses every single time after that. It's crazy. Gosh. Um, did, did you have any crossover by chance with uh, Maxan Lewis? Um, with oh, Tina I love Turner? Maxan. No. Okay. No, I didn't, but I love Maxan. Um, so she probably came after you. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. Um, so how did things differ, you know, working with Little Richard versus what you did with Tina? Well, I used to always ask Richard for every performance. Richard, can I sing a song and, and then do a dance and bring you out? And he would, couldn't pronounce my name. He'd say, let me think about it, Shirley. Okay, Shirley, let me think. Uh, <laughs> so then the next week I'd say, come on, Richard, let me sing. So it differed in that way that I was only a dancer with him. And I was always frustrated because I said, he's got to let me sing sooner or later. He's got to know that that's what I do first. You know, uh, he never did, though. And eventually the tour was over. But I mean, I learned a lot from him, too. Richard had uh, a sense of excellence about him that, you know, you've seen his shows, you know, sing, dance, jump on the piano. Um, you know, write music. He was just a one-man show, and uh, he used to whip those crowds, his audiences, into a frenzy. And uh, he would say, uh, "Surely they just hate me because I'm beautiful." The <laughs> <laughs> way, shut up. <laughs> so, I, I loved him. He's a character and a half. Yeah. Wow, you're with a couple of legends right off the bat with those two. Um, I, know, I know. And uh, I had Rob, uh, Robin Russell, who, who just left away, and um, we lost him this week. But he was a drummer with Little Richard, probably, oh. again, shortly after you were with Little Richard. And he had okay. some great stories about, about that, too. Um, I, ha I had a dance partner, and his name was byron gilliam and he was the one that was on laughing you remember the tall elegant nice looking slender dancer he was in playboy after dark um 
and uh, and that TV show Laugh-In every week as a, as a beautiful, he's a beautiful dancer. And I was happy that I was hooked up with him doing, uh, you know, doing the opening for Little Richard because he was amazing. I didn't think I was, you know, good enough for him, but, you know, it, it, it worked out good, it worked out fine. And so then after that, um, how many more uh, experiences did you have sort of leading up to the, the Honeycone? Um, I wanna say that I toured with Dusty Springfield and did all of uh, Canada. And I think that was the same era. And I did that with um, Alex Brown and Julia Waters. And uh, you know the Waters? You, I know you know the Waters. Yeah. Legendary uh, family of singers, musicians, and songwriters. And um, we had a great time. Uh, was, I was with Max, Maxine Waters and Alex Brown. And we did all of Canada and that was great. That was fun. And um, I think shortly thereafter, I met Shirley May Matthews, legendary veteran in the industry. If you don't know, you have to Google her, S-H-E-R-L-I-E, May Matthews. And this woman was so, uh, she had, talk about a quadruple thread. She was a, a producer, a songwriter, a singer, and she put me in a group with her, with the uh, uh, legendary Cal Carolyn Willis, pre-Honeycomb. So I met Carolyn first, and me and Carolyn and Shirley May Matthews, we were a group. Willis, Matthews, and Clark later changed to the cover girls. We was, played, she, was she out of Detroit, Matthews? Shirley, she may have been, but I knew her to be here. She was singing with the Rolling Stones. This girl did everything. If you see her discography, um, you know, her Wikipedia, she just, she was, but anyway, she was a manager too. So she was booking us and singing with us in different clubs. And then one day, Carolyn said, Michelle, you know, I sing with this other girl sometime. Her name is Edna Wright. And she has to do a show that her sister cannot do. The sister's name is Darlene Love. And I think I had heard of Darlene back then. And um, I said, oh, great. Okay, so what show is it? And she said, it's going to be the Andy Williams TV special featuring Burt Backrack and Dion Warwick. And, um, and I met Edna for the first time at the show. And I didn't know that... Uh, she had asked Edward Holland to watch us, watch the show and see what he thinks because he was trying to sign her as a solo. She didn't want to be a solo, she wanted to be in a group. And so um, he was watching and he called her after the show and said, what a great look, what a great sound. You girls should come to Detroit and let me sign you. And so I actually wasn't ready to be in a group. So I was a, kind of like a holdout, a little bit of a holdout. Um, but eventually I did go maybe four months later and um, I signed and Edward said, okay, you girls names is gonna be Honeycomb. And we looked at each other and said, what? Honey, what? What is that? It's not even Honeycomb, you know, with a B, it's Honeycomb. And I didn't find out till later that that was a, a dessert that he used to like. And so uh, as a child, he ate 
honeycomb cones, uh, but we were just honeycomb, no plural, nothing, not even the, not even the honeycomb, just a lot, honeycomb. A lot of people confuse it and will say the, I noticed, yeah. Well, you know, there is a group called honeycomb. <laughs> but a lot of people say the honeycomb. And they also. say the honeycomb. Yeah. And I think I refer to us now as the honeycomb. But there is a, a white group and they're called honeycomb. And I think that they are, they might be from uh, London. I can't remember, but if you Google them, you'll, you'll see another group called honeycomb with a B. You know, I just had uh, Eddie and Brian were on the show last week. So we were oh, talking nice. all kinds together. of history. They yeah, were yeah. together? Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, nice. Um, and, uh, you know, Andy Williams, it's funny because you bring back uh, some memories for me when I was a little kid. My father used to watch the Andy Williams show. Mm -hmm. And I remember enjoying Moon River and all that stuff mm. from that show. So long time and, child uh, memories. They, uh, they're so creative being in the studio with them. And um, Lamont Dozier, he was the one that uh, focused on our background vocals a lot. And so Lamont is a real genius. He probably doesn't get the recognition that he's due, but, but he was great. We pretty much worked with him. Carolyn Willis was also a background expert. So everything that uh, Lamont gave us the singing unison, uh, Carolyn would put it into harmony. <laughs> so. <laughs> What? We can handle it, though. I mean, we were good. <laughs> Definitely, we were good. Um, yeah, we were good. <laughs> uh, what, Shelly, what were you, like, thinking aspirationally, you know, when you were, you know, right before the honeycomb and when you were doing Tina and you're doing Little Richard and you're going through these things, what did you envision for yourself in the entertainment or music industry? I actually thought that maybe I would be um, a solo artist and um, I almost signed to Motown, but I was actually rejected uh, because they wanted me to sound like Brenda Holloway. And they kept giving me songs like that to, to copy, to sound like her and come back. And I would, I would like go back like maybe 10 different times and after the 10th time, I said, you know, I'm probably not meant to sign to Motown uh, because I never, but, but I never gave up the dream. I thought, okay, well, not them. Then I'll, you know, eventually be signed to somebody else. But then, you know, Carolyn Willis and Shirley came along and I actually thought that we were going to be a pretty cool group. And we were, uh, except for you know, when we got that call from Edna, after that, there was no looking back. And um, Honeycomb didn't have any hits, of course, for a while. We were like the Supremes on Motown. They were called the No Hit Wonders or something <laughs> for a long time. And I believe that we recorded, it had to be four years um, before we, I think they released While You're Out Looking for Sugar. And it, you know, maybe went to 50, 60 or 50 something like that and so they asked us not to take work because they wanted us to be a fresh faced group but i figured hey what's the harm in doing a little tv here and there so i did and i got on the um jim neighbors variety hour mm -hmm. and what a great job that was working three days a week making big bank 
uh, you know, every get paid every uh, week in cash, just about. And um, I was never more sorry when one ads hit. And they told me, oh, okay, Shelly, you've had enough fun. You got to get off that show now. <laughs> and I said, no, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't want to be on the honeycomb anymore. <laughs> but I don't know. I um, eventually, you know, the people on, at the producers of the TV show got angry and they said, uh, how dare you be double booked uh, that way, you know, and you're already signed. I said, I said, you know, I forgot to tell you guys, I'm signed to a group called the Honeycomb from out of Detroit, and our record just went to number one, I got to go. And they said, well, you can go all right, but if you don't want a lawsuit, you better uh, replace yourself with someone that we approve. And I was, uh, I was terrified because those auditions to get on that show were intense. You had the same dance act, uh, do note retention. I, I'll play you 10 notes and you better sing them back to me in order. You had to sight read, which is give you a piece of, you know, sheet music and you, you sing what's on there. And uh, the, the um, auditions were grueling. And I said, well, who in the world can I get? And I think I tried two girls that they rejected. And I said, oh my God, I'm stuck here forever. Uh, but eventually, I told, I asked Alex Brown, she, you know, she's an ex-Raylette and I asked her to come and audition and she passed all the auditions. And so uh, they took her and then I was free to go and I left for Detroit after that. Wow. sounds like a little bit of stress right in there. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> who, who, uh, who were some of the singers that you really idolized, uh, you know, coming up or kind of aspired to, or who were your favorites? Um, I actually liked um, all the Broadway artists, all the Broadway stars and, and, and the singers like Diane Carroll and, and like um, Sally Blair and the singers that were not so, you know, no one knew about. That, you know, I liked Ella, I liked, um, and I liked a lot of um, a classical music. And so I was really different in that respect that, you know, I wasn't idolizing the Supremes or uh, even though uh, Edna did. Edna liked all the acts on Motown. And I think that's where she figured, um, you know, I want to pattern my life after that in a great girls group like Martha Reeves. Martha was one of her idols, um, but I just, you know, who, if you were in a Broadway play or any kind of, any, any kind of play like that, like the Mikado, um, any kind of play like that, I was all over it. And it didn't matter who was singing because of course they would switch out uh, various singers sometimes, but that's who I grew up listening to all the all the Broadway stars. Sounds like maybe that ties back to your childhood of doing the pageants and that sort of thing, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Can you tell viewers, uh, you know, some something about Edna in terms of, you know, her talent and also her personality? Oh, wow. Um, I was never more um, just 
I was honored and humbled to do this tribute that we uh, did on, for her on That's My Story. Um, back in the day, uh, Edna just, she could get in that studio and knock out vocals like no, and I'd be thinking to myself, I'm just mesmerized listening to her and how does she have that kind of powerful voice? And, you know, Darlene is a great singer uh, as well. And these two powerhouse sisters, but Edna to me just had, uh, to me, she was more of a, I don't know, it was smoother, you know, it was a smoother kind of soul. And um, although she had problems with choreography, <laughs> and she'd always say, okay, okay, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Just, you know, give me a minute. We used to work with Charlie Atkins and it was uh, no dark secret that, you know, Edna had trouble, but I mean, she was a lead singer, so she didn't have to always do all the steps, but she wanted to. And uh, she wanted to, you know, do everything that we were doing. And we would just say, just go, just sing, Edna. You don't have to, you know, <laughs> be bothered with all the, the steps, but um I don't know, you can get mesmerized just watching her on stage. You have to slap yourself and say, snap out of it. <laughs> Focus on what you're doing, because she was such a dynamic performer. And, and she's funny. She is, she's hilarious. Uh, later on in life, we started calling each other Lucy. And she called me, I think she thought she was calling me Ethel, but she called me Gracie. Instead of Ethel, so George we, Burns and Lucille Ball combined. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, she was zany. You know, Lucille Ball was the zany, talented, creative, uh, crack you up redhead. Uh, and so I would always call her Lucy. I'm home, and she would always call me Gracie. And so um, I don't know how we we started it. It just you know was just a thing with us. And so her personality, all I can say is she's like totally vivacious and very confident because she could knock out a song, you know, she could knock out a take. And I think we surprised Edward and Brian quite a bit that we would get in the studio and she would knock out that lead and we'd come right in with those vocals, change them around and make them sassier. And uh, that was Carolyn. And um, so that's what I would say about her. She's the, she's the quintessential um, vocalist and performer so uh and you know very headstrong she knew exactly what she wanted to do and would just say no no i i hear it this way so um you know she was she was amazing and i and i know uh brian edward and lamont knew that as well that's why they wanted her for a solo artist but um like i said she wasn't having that she wanted to be in a group and, and Carolyn brought the sass, you're saying? Carolyn brought those background vocals. She was the, um, I want to say, the ultimate soprano in the industry at that time. I don't think anybody, and Carolyn could do Aretha Franklin songs, which you know are hard to do. But when we were uh, singing together with Willis Matthews and Clark, Carolyn had two Aretha Franklin leads that she would, you know, that she had in the show. And man, she was amazing. And we, then we did this song with this ring, I promise I'll always love you uh, in three part harmony all the way through. Fantastic. It gave me chills because I said, wow, this was a good idea. <laughs> but uh, 
But so yeah, everybody brought something. And so I think we were a little hard to handle for um, uh, Hot Wax Records and all the, the people they assigned us, you know, um, etiquette uh, teachers and Miss uh, Maxine, I forgot what her last name is, was, but Maxine something, something. But we gave them all a hard time because we were from LA and we thought we were, uh, you know, we were sassy, we were brilliant, we were everything. But I mean, we learned a lot from her. We learned a lot from everything that, that they did for us at, at the label. And so, uh, you know. How, how, how did they, um, you know, how did your, your aesthetic or look or, you know, style come to be? Well, uh, that was Carolyn here again. Uh, uh, Carolyn could make her own clothes she could draw, she could, uh, she built it. She was amazing. And she would say, look, you know, we are not going to be uh, the stuffy gowns within the gloves. And we're not going to do that. And we're not going to just have the lead singer always standing in the middle. We're going to switch it up and we're going to dress sexy and we're going to have our own look. And uh, I remember one such uh, wardrobe that we put together with, reminded me of LaBelle. We had on that silver futuristic uh, type stuff. And Carolyn had on the silver boots up to the knees. And, you know, it was, it was like very provocative and very different for that time. Um, but I think because our writers, our songwriters gave us sassy lyrics, you know, I mean, think of our songs. While you're out looking for sugar, somebody's going to take your honey. You know, the day I found, the day I lost you was the day I found myself. Uh, one monkey don't stop, no show. Uh, stick up, you, you know, you stole my love from me. You know? <laughs> so all of our lyrics, that, but I believe that we were the first group that came along that wasn't, uh, we weren't begging a man to stay. We were telling him, and that's what they tell us now, that we were uh, so innovative. Uh, with our lyrics and so forth we were telling a guy you don't act right we'll replace you i mean that was unheard of at the time you were supposed to say baby love my baby love and you know <laughs> uh, stop in the name of love don't break my heart you know we were telling you look one monkey don't stop no show you know if you don't want my love you free to go <laughs> yeah, that attitude and independence and Exactly, yeah. exactly. We, we set a brand new precedence for girls' groups and lyrics and that, that kind of thing. And, and people tell me to this day, you know, me and my, me and my friends, you know, we were in a talent show and we used to dress up like you girls and, you know, we sang all the songs and, and, uh, and you know, some say, you know, we used to put fake hair on and, and, and you know, we were the we were the honeycomb dressed, you know, real provocative. We were the honeycomb, and so I mean, I like that. I like that that people thought of us enough to to do that. You know. Yeah, inspiring for sure. <laughs> um, you know, and th that first album, uh, although it didn't sell as much as what came after, right. there was some really strong, you know, funky soul and gospel soul. And, you know, it's good material on there. Yeah, I know. I know. It's almost like, I think, did we do four albums? Yeah. Or five? Did we do four? 
four, uh, well, four of new material. And okay. um, yeah, take me with you. Um, you know, songs like when will it end? And are you man enough? Are you man enough? I mean, yeah. really, come on now. <laughs> you know, are you strong enough? And then, and then the, the one with the real provocative lyrics, uh, you made me come to you. And I'm like, can we get away with singing that? <laughs> so I think we did. <laughs> they probably got very deep, uh, you know, one of the, you know, fifth cuts on the album, but, um, but yeah, so we had, we had good, you know, we had great lyrics. We had, we had, uh, I think we had young songwriters and they took a leap of faith with the, the stuff, you know, Angelo Bond, Greg Perry, Edna's um, husband, uh, General Johnson, chairman of the board. These guys were like, um, they were like a dream team, dream team of writers. And they knew uh, what they had, you know, three, crazy girls from LA, you know, we can, we can stretch out a little bit with them. Although you do know that um, uh, Sherry Payne from the Glass House was the first one to record one ads. And um, the song just didn't gel with her and it passed over to Edna. And, uh, you know, Edna made it uh, a hit. Did, but I like I, Sherry's version. I do like it. Did, did Take Me With You or um, Soul Tapestry uh, come first? Do you remember which? I don't remember. Um, well, in any case, after that first album, do you recall, Shelley, what the sentiment was in terms of, you know, hey, we got to do something to really get a huge hit? You know, what was the thought process? Uh, you, you must mean leading up to one ends. Yeah. Um, they cut so much stuff on us and we we were just cranking it out as soon as they gave it to us we crank it out and um i personally didn't think that one as was a great hit when we sang it i knew i liked it but my favorite song was um uh, girls it ain't easy to keep the man you love satisfied it ain't easy and that was my favorite and i thought that maybe that one would hit but to my surprise, uh, one ads took off. Um, like I said, I don't remember being that much in love with it, that it was going to be a great hit. So when they called to tell me, get off that show, uh, you know, we have a number one record. And I was like, which one? <laughs> you know, one ads, aren't you listening to the radio? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, uh, I think, I guess it was just a progression of, we're gonna throw everything on the wall and something was gonna stick and eventually it did. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends and become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.